I have a couple of things. Just first of all, what do you know what's happening next Sunday? No, not the Super Bowl. Who cares about the Super Bowl, right? <laughs> Uh, next Sunday here, how, how, let me ask this. How many have gone away and been in a warmer climate and enjoyed some sun through January at all? Okay, a few of you have been lucky. Next Sunday, we're doing the Caribbean Sunday, okay? Garfield is going to come and lead us in some Jamaican worship, okay? And there's people clapping. They did this last year. We're bringing the warmth to you, and so I would encourage some, if you want to, you can wear shorts and you can wear your flowered shirt or whatever you want to do, but um, I encourage you to kind of get in the spirit, because we're going to come and we're going to worship and, and do that together. Also, I have just a couple other things I just want, I, I want to say, and that is, um, I'm so grateful to Ben and Jill and to um, the different people who have shared their story, because it's not an easy thing to get up here and to share um, the story, because all of them are kind of going, I, I don't want to draw attention to myself. And to do that and to say, here's how God worked in my life. I know it encouraged us to think about how God's at work in our own situation. And so um, I do want to say this. If you want to grow in this gift of giving, if, if Wednesday night, this Wednesday night, that class that we're going to be offering, um, come for dinner and then come and 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 maybe speak with some others and learn some really good principles around that. That's one of the way God changes our heart is through his word. And so um, that's a great class. So I encourage you to be a part of that. Well, you know what? We're in this series and it's Thrive. And, and one of the things you find is that there is three big no's that Jesus gives through this time of temptation. So when you think about it, saying no is just never really easy, is it? But as I was... Preparing in the last few weeks, I, I found that for some people it just comes naturally, right? Even at a young age. You know, there are just some people who get it and they're able to say no and sometimes they don't know how to say yes. Uh, they ask, do you love your mom, do you love your dad? And no, no, no. So um, anyway, these past few Sundays, one of the things we've learned is that while Jesus was being tempted, he had the ability to say no. He learned to say no to his appetites through this spiritual practice of fasting. He said no to the voices crying out all around him in order to practice silence and solitude, going off to a place where he was alone. He developed the will to say no to temptation, the temptation of hurry and busyness, by taking measures to slow his life down. Think about it. He went into the wilderness. In the wilderness, he did not teach to anybody. He did not heal anybody. He did not, in that wilderness, write a book. He did not, in that wilderness, do anything. What we would, in our mind, say was productive, except for what he was doing, was taking some practices, establishing some habits that he had done earlier that he would do throughout his ministry that created the capacity for God to speak to his heart, to keep him in a place of his identity and to live out his mission. And Jesus thrived because he was able to say no. And learning to say no and what to say yes to is the difference between thriving and and merely surviving. And he thrived because his life, he established these practices that strengthened his faith and developed his will. Because Jesus learned, we're told in Hebrews, just like us, through suffering. And sometimes those 
saying no to habits of, you know, our appetites and other things are the very things that put us in a place where we open our heart to God. So every week I've pointed to, if, I, if you go, if you've been here and you've been a part of it, but I, I've been pointing back to the very first message in the series because it is the foundation from which the spiritual practices are built. Jesus was baptized and his baptism was incredibly important in that experience because he stepped into his mission where he went into the water and he was identifying with the sin of people, although he himself was sinless. Peter tells us that in 1 Peter, he never sinned, and he was with him, but he identified with sinful mankind so that he could take upon himself your and my sin and remove it from us through the cross forever. And as he did that and stepped into that baptismal um, water, the heavens opened, a... Dove, the Spirit of God, came upon him, and we're told the Father spoke. And and the Father said, you are my son, whom I love. His identity. You're my son, and I am in love with you. And then he made this interesting statement. You bring me great delight. Because what you're doing is stepping into the mission, what I've called you to do. To actively move into this place of fulfilling what my call has been upon your life. And so here you see, you're my son, his identity, and you see this sense of delight because of he's moving into the mission. You see the mission that he was about. And that identity and mission is important if you're going to learn to say no. So that's why I say this first message in that series is really important. Because if you don't know your identity in God and you don't know the mission, his call upon your life, and everyone here is called, he calls to everyone and if you answer, he begins to to lead you and guide you, you will be actually be distracted and it will detract from the things God wants you to experience and know. You ever uh, noticed how clear the UPS guy is at Christmas? about their identity and mission. Ever seen those guys? Men or women? They're just like on task, right? They know their identity. They're delivery drivers. And they know their mission. It's to get every package delivered in an allotted amount of time. And because they know their identity and they know their mission, they don't get distracted. Jesus had that kind of sense about what he was doing. He knew his identity. His heavenly father said, you're my beloved son. He knew his mission. His mission was to declare the good news of the kingdom of God. That's the first thing he said when he, when he started his mission, his ministry. He said to people, I'm here to declare to you that the kingdom of God is available to any person who longs or desires it. So Jesus fasted and went away to be silent. He slowed his life down. And he did all that so he could stay clear about these two foundational things. So when we talk about spiritual practices, they are merely ways, whether it's reading God's word, whether it's in prayer, whether it's getting away and being silent for some time to hear the voice of God, whether it's saying no to your appetites by fasting, they are ways in order to allow God to speak to you and say, I love you, you're my child. And here's what I want you to do. 
So that's why they're important. Because otherwise we get distracted by all kinds of voices and we get moving to such a degree that our appetites, our desires take over. Our flesh is what the Bible says begins to drive us. So let me ask you this as we think about it. Do you know your identity? Do you have a sense of what your mission is? And without the spiritual practices in your life, I can tell you you're going to have a difficult time staying in that identity of God and fulfilling that mission. And here's what's interesting about it. Those practices help us because they even give greater clarity as we go through life. Life isn't static. You don't get this identity. Okay, I'm God's son. He loves me. And yeah, he's called me to do some things. It's dynamic. And because it changes, we also need to be in the habit. And so here are some of the habits. Satan comes from three times. He tempts Jesus. And three times Jesus says no. And again, as we said, these temptations are also tests. Satan comes to injure and destroy Jesus, to, to each of us. That's what his, his task is. And he keeps us from living out our identity and mission for God. And at the same time, God allows these temptations to be tests. Because he is allowing those tests to clarify our identity and to give direction to our mission. And those tests are opportunities for us to prove our faith, to trust and say, God, in this place right now where I'm being tempted, whatever it is, I'm trusting you. And when you trust him, it is also a way of testing, in a sense, God's faithfulness to you. So that as you do this, there's this wonderful sense of, of rhythm that takes place. You trust, and then God proves himself faithful to be trusted. The the very first temptation that we looked at is found in Matthew chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And the first temptation is you are what you have. Satan comes to him and says, turn the stones to bread. You're obviously hungry. What does it matter? You're God's son. And Jesus simply says, no, I will not be defined by what I have. My security is not in my stuff, nor in my ability to provide the stuff I need. More important than the stuff is God's word and the truth that he will provide for me. And then he comes to the second temptation. We looked at that um, last week where he talks about this idea of this test that you are what you do. Matthew 4, verses 5 through 7. Satan brings him to the top of the temple and he says, jump, wow the people with who you are and show them what you can do. You are what you do. And Jesus says, no, my importance is not defined by what I do. I will not be defined by how busy I am or how much I accomplish. My sense of self is not defined by doing more or better or faster than others. I will only do what God calls me to do and when he calls me to do it. I won't put him to the test. So then the third temptation we're looking at this morning is an interesting one because I I, I put it this way. It's the test that says you are what others think. You are what you have. You are what you do. But now it's this test of you are what others think. Matthew chapter 4 verses 8 through 10. And we're going to read that. So I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask you to read this with me. This being the third temptation. You are what others think. And again... The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, 
For it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Let's pray. Father, would you take these few moments that we have and help us to understand this temptation that we all face. Help us, God, to be aware of them and then in them to trust you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So I love the way the Message Bible puts this. So I'm going to paraphrase. I'm going to read this paraphrase. For the third test, the devil took him to the peak of a huge mountain and he gestured expansively, pointing out all the earth's kingdoms. How glorious they all were. And then he said, they're yours. Lock, stock, and barrel. Just go down on your knees and worship me and they're yours. And who's going to know? And Jesus' refusal was curt. Beat it, Satan. (laughs) Get away from me. And he backed his rebuke with a third quotation from Deuteronomy. Worship the Lord your God and only him. Serve him with absolute single-heartedness. Now, I just want to share with you a few things about this temptation, again, from just a a standpoint of understanding this word of Scripture. Um, New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, the guy I was uh, a professor of mine at Trinity, where I went to school down in Chicago area, Trinity Seminary, um, he writes, The very high mountain does not seem much more than a prop for the vision of the world's kingdom. It is doubtful that there is a conscious reference to Moses looking over the promised land. There's some commentators who say that. Or to any other specific mountain in the region. And the reason I say that, he's just merely pointing out, remember I said, it's sometimes easier, if Satan came to you in horns, it would be an easier way to, you know, you know, to step away from the temptation. Right? He just comes so subtly. So here it is. In, in one sense, it could be that Jesus is facing Satan in, in this, in this way, and he's looking out from a place that's high up. A high mountain that sees all the kingdoms, all the world's powers. They're all there. And the temptation that comes at this point is to, is to kind of take a shortcut to the mission. To kind of step out of the love of his father and identity to his son and, and to, to do it his own way. Satan offers it all to Jesus and he does it without toil or tears or loss of life. All you have to do is bend your knee to me. It's that simple. He's basically saying all this is yours. But there's only one condition. Worship me. It's what you find in literature and you find in movies at times when you come across this idea of selling your soul to Satan, right? It's not, you know, it's not a big deal. You know, it's just this private little transaction. No one's going to know and you're going to get what you want. But yeah, you may, you may actually end up selling your family as well as you go after your career. Or you may end up actually selling your integrity as you seek to kind of get that extra money in a way that might not be the way it should be. Or whatever the temptation is, it comes to you. And in a sense, Satan just introduces the thought. Is it really necessary to go through all this humility, suffering, and self-sacrifice? There's an easier way. And Jesus responds one final time. And again, I, I, I like the way the paraphrase is that he says here. He kind of says, not only is your refusal curt, but he backed his rebuke with the third quotation. He makes it really clear. Every time Satan comes to him, the word of God is his response. 
That's why it's so important. I can't stress this enough to get to know the word of God. That's why that practice of daily reading the word of God, that practice of taking time to be taught, to come to some of the classes that we have that can teach you. Um, and you know, like Wednesday nights might be hard to get to, but you, you know, we, we offer some classes on, on the Bible. So you go, oh, you know, the excuse of I can't understand it. You can, you can understand it. There are Ways to grow in this so that the word of God. So the third time he comes to him because knowing the word of God is, is vital to thriving. So Satan tells him and, and, and Jesus says to him, flee for it is written. Here's what the word of God says. Worship the Lord, your God and serve him only. Live your life before an audience of one. Live to please only one. Serve only one with all your strength. Seek one's approval above all the others. Get away from me, Satan. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And here's the temptation. Bend your knee, worship me. Now let me put it in a way that I think is far more subtle because this is what I think so often happens and you'll find it in the life of Jesus as well. And it's not so much about bending your knee to Satan. There's lots of ways you can bend your knee to him and you don't even know you're doing it. You know how you do it? You ever ever, ever had the temptation you are what others think because what you do is you seek the approval of others over against God? That's a sneaky way to get in, isn't it? Well, yeah, I know, God, I should do this, but, mm, you know, my boss or, or my husband or, or, or my wife or whatever, whoever, my dad, my mom, whatever it is, my child. Now, you might think that Jesus, once he banished Satan like he did, said, get away from me because it's over then at that point. That's the last of the, the temptations in the wilderness, only three of them. You think Satan would flee, but Luke writes in Luke chapter 4, verse 13, that when the devil had finished his tempting, he left until an opportune time. Man's interesting. He kind of stepped away for a little bit and thought, you know what? It, the, the word actually in the, in the Greek is this idea of his new season, a, a different season. It's kind of like he was waiting for, for Jesus not to be so strong, so prepared. There'd be a time maybe when he's successful that he could just kind of step in. Maybe at a time when he's just exhausted, he could just step in. What's really interesting is you read the word of God, it's hardly a week goes by before Jesus faces this very same temptation again. It, that opportune time came pretty quickly. Jesus, after the temptation, goes from the wilderness back to his hometown of Nazareth, and he goes to his hometown, and one of the first acts that he does to, to open up his ministry is he announces to those in his hometown in the synagogue... By reading Isaiah, here I am, the one that's been proclaimed. And as he's reading this, people are upset. It doesn't go real well. In fact, they're rejecting him. You would kind of think, you know, he's back home. Here he's telling people they've seen him. He's a homie. We should be naming streets after him, that kind of thing. But it says that they're rejected. In fact, if you look at Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30, but specifically at one point, it says all the people in the synagogue were furious. They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. 
So here are the, what I call approval ratings of Jesus from the very beginning as he's trying to make a, you know, his entrance. They're going lower than what they were. He was the good kid of Mary's son that, you know, and they had a little question probably in Nazareth. There's rumor, etc. But here he is now. They not only are, is his approval rating going down, but he's at the brow of the hill and he is physically going to hit bottom. But God intervenes and he walks through it. He returns to Capernaum. So this is about the second week. It could be a couple of weeks. Once again, it's a Sabbath. He goes to the synagogue. And here's a, just another spiritual practice. Just so you get the idea of spiritual practices. Worshiping God, hearing the word of God. What you're doing right now, I commend you. Because it says in the word of God, it was his custom. It was his habit. Jesus made this a habit of his life. And if Jesus did it, I would think maybe we should. And so he would do this. So he goes to the, sab- to the synagogue, and he's here at the synagogue in Capernaum, and he begins to teach, and people's hearts are overwhelmed. He teaches with an authority, like as if he's authored what he's saying. And there is a guy who stands up, he heals this person, and they're amazed. And news begins to spread throughout the town, even though it's a Sabbath, where you're not supposed to walk very far, so it probably went from neighbor to neighbor to neighbor to neighbor. And his approval rating begins to go up. And then what's interesting, that afternoon, so he's done with the, you know, the synagogue service is done. They go home back to Simon, Peter, to his mother-in-law's house. She lives in Capernaum. They go to her home. I think he's thinking, I'm going to just rest and sit down. You know, it's smoke today and tired. I know what that's like. Also did some ministry afterwards. I'm going to kind of, and they find out that, that Peter's mother-in-law is ill. So Jesus goes, you know, I, I, I'm going to go in and, and, and heal her. So he goes in and he heals her, and, and she gets up. And, and, and he, when the sun sets, Sabbath is ending. Now people are free to walk wherever they want. It says that people began to just come around the home. Listen, listen to the words that we find here in Mark chapter 1, verse 32 through 4. That evening, after the sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. Now, catch this. The whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. His approval reading is going sky high. He actually heals late into the night. See, imagine this. He's been doing all this ministry. He's tired. He's exhausted. This is the perfect time. This is opportune time to come in. And Mark offers some insight. Here he's exhausted. He goes to sleep. He puts his head in the pill. He's out. But listen to Mark 30, verse 35 of 1. It says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Again, another important spiritual practice. He's tired, he's exhausted, he's had a successful day, he's, he's, his approval ratings are high. You'd think sleep in, enjoy yourself. He goes off, finds silence and solitude and begins to pray because he needs to stay connected to the identity that he's the son of God, the father loves, and he needs to stay on task for what the father wants him to do. He needs to hear his voice and what he should do. And what you find is that Jesus is up in a way, the disciples, they get up, they're sitting around, they're probably having breakfast, they, they hear the people clamoring outside the door, and they look around, and they go, where's Jesus? And they can't find him. 
So then we're told in verse 36, Simon and his companions then went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. I mean, this is the greatest. The whole town's at your door. Approval ratings have hit the roof. His Facebook likes are at a all-time high. In fact, the, the Instagram shot of him healing people is being shared, even down in Jerusalem. And beyond that, his, his little statement, blessed are the poor, that little tweet, has gone viral. I mean, he's this is good stuff. What will Jesus do? Does he stay there and continue ministry? Verse 38, Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else. To nearby villages so I can preach there also. Catch this. That is why I have come. Away alone listening, he hears, I love you, son. I do what I've asked. My approval and my mission is more important than the approval and mission of others. But these are little, real legitimate things. People have hurts over there. They're calling him. And he says, no, I got to stay on task. We live in an age, when you think about it, of approval addiction. If you don't learn to say no to this need for approval, you will not be able to say yes to God in those kind of situations when it counts. Reality TV is merely a mirror on the reality of our lives. People are starved for both attention and approval. And you may go, I don't need the attention because there are people who don't need the attention, but I don't know anybody, very few, who don't desire approval. So what I want to share with you in these remaining moments is the practices that I think are important for dealing with this sense of you are what others think. Because you may live with that temptation. It may not be Satan. It may be coming through other people. So you are what you think. And these practices that I'm going to share with you, you might look at and think like kind of at first they sound kind of funny. But I want to explain them to you because I think they are very important. They're critical to your spiritual health. And the very first one that you're going to go, really? The first one is disappoint people. Okay? Disappoint people. You must be willing to disappoint people from time to time. Have you ever noticed how often Jesus was disappointing people in ministry? He faced it all the times with all kinds of people. He disappointed the zealots. He fed 5,000 one time and they attempted to make him king. And he said, that's not why I'm here. He disappointed the religious leaders. Why do you heal on the Sabbath, they say? In fact, they were upset sometimes because he'd go in and he wouldn't do the ritual cleansing of his hands. And they, they said, why don't you wash your hands? And he said, because it's not about some kind of ritual thing I do out here. I'm trying to teach people it's about the heart. He disappointed political leaders. He was at one point standing before Herod and Herod said, come on, show us a miracle. And he said, no. He stood before Pilate and at one point disappointed Pilate because Pilate says, come on, this is the moment, this is the hour, speak up, defend yourself. And it says he was silent. He disappointed his followers. Peter and them come to him and say, what are you doing? The whole town's looking for you. We're not going to build kind of the headquarters here. We're going to go on. One time Peter comes and says, what are you doing sleeping here in the back? There's this storm. We're going to die. Don't you care? Another time he said, we're going to Jerusalem. And, then, and, and Thomas and some of the others said, are, are you crazy? And it says he set his face like flint, willing to disappoint people. He disappointed his family. His family one time came to him and, and they said, you know what? I think he's lost his head. He's a little crazy. We got to get him. He's doing stuff. He's saying stuff that, you know what? 
He disappointed his mom. Hey, mom, I, I love you, but you know I have to be about my heavenly father's business. And, and so one of the first things I want you to consider is kind of an interesting little kind of weird kind of practice that I'm going to ask you to do. And that's what I call just be willing to disappoint someone. Now, I don't want you to kind of get, leave here and go, yeah, you know what? I, I don't have to do that. I'm going to disappoint you because the pastor said to or the Bible says I'm supposed to do this. Because look at Jesus and his life. He's disappointing people. This is not an excuse to fail to come through as a friend when you should or to do the responsibilities you should as, 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 as partners to one another or, or as kids in a family or parents to kids. It, it's not about saying to those at work, it doesn't matter. When you make agreements and contracts and things such as that, when you live out this life, there are things that you're called to do. It's more subtle than that. It's the kind of stuff that I think you all know what I'm talking about. It's discerning those occasions when you have to just say, no, I can't, I really can't do that. And you're, and they're looking at you and you know you're going to disappoint them. Sometimes it's, it's the kind of stuff you need to do around holidays with your spouse where you kind of just say, you know, here's a boundary we need to hold and you know it's going to be hard because you have parents or siblings you're going to disappoint. What does it mean for you to live like Jesus, to say no and be willing? And here's, be willing to just listen to God, get aside, hear those moments, and know that God is saying, I want you to do this, and yes, it will disappoint someone. Anybody, anybody lived this before? Yeah, you should all be raising your hand, because I think we all do. So here's my questions I want to ask you. Can you live with someone's disapproval? Is there someone so important that you have to have that person's approval? Who is it? Is that person's approval more important than God's? So what I normally do is kind of move on real quickly, you know. I really want you to think about this for a second. I want you, and some of you might have it like that in your head. I want you to think about it. Am I able to live with that person's disapproval? Knowing that what I'm doing is right and good and is about God's approval. Am I willing to stand up for the truth of God's word in a situation where you know that some others are going to say, Wow, what a, what a crazy Christian kook. Whose approval is more important than God's? Are you afraid to say no to a a, a spouse? Because your sense of worth and your sense of who you are is just so determined by that. Maybe it's your culture. You know, if you're not this kind of person or if you're single, you're not full, whatever it is. Can you live and say, God, where I'm at right now in this time, I'm going to live with the approval that you have on my life and I'm going to wait for you to do what needs to be done. Jesus was not afraid to face the disapproval of others. He was passionate about one thing. God's approval. There's another little practice that I'm going to encourage you to do. It's what I call be sneaky good. Be sneaky good. This is um, one of those things that I, I think it takes the it takes the steam and energy out of of wanting people's you know pat on the back, at a boy kind of thing. 
by being sneaky good. And you go, well, what do you mean? Well, Jesus, I can just go through the, the whole approval addiction. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest message ever given, right after Jesus comes out of this time of temptation, he heals a bunch of people and then he gives this message on a mountain. On that mountain, he starts out and he gives beatitudes. You know what beatitudes are? They're basically um, the opposite of what people might think. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the, the those who mourn. Blessed are those who are hungry. He 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 sets up these opposites where you go, well, you know, the rich people are the ones that we approve. The poor, and then he goes and he moves to another thing and he starts saying, here's the other thing you kind of do around approval stuff. You know, you kind of think if you go to church, you give and you do these actions, you ritually clean your hands. And God's going, good job. And then he says, no, here's the truth to those of you who say, you know, I don't murder, I don't commit adultery. He says, what's in your heart? God's approval is about the heart, not just some actions you're doing. He's really thrilled you're here, but he's not thrilled if your heart's going like, gosh, I got to put this hour in again. My wife or my husband wants me to be here. I got to do this for the kids. But then he goes to this next one, which hits at the heart of it, and he gives three illustrations in Matthew 6. Here's the, the thing he goes, Matthew 6, 1 through 4. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that, you, that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Be sneaky good. Prayer. But when you pray, do not stand in the synagogue on the street corners to be seen by others. I tell you the truth. They have received their reward in full. When you pray, go in your room, close the door, pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Be sneaky good. He's not saying you got to go into a closet to pray. He's making this point. Don't do stuff for others' approval so you can be seen. Fasting. When you fast, people go, oh, we don't need to fast. Yeah, fasting is really good for you. In fact, they're showing you now physically. Uh, doctors will tell you a, a, an amount of fasting, a certain amount of hours, 24 to 36 hours, physically is good for your body. But he says, when you fast, do not look somber, disfigure your faces to show others you're fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. What's a reward? People going, oh, wow, isn't he spiritual? But when you fast, do it so that it will not be obvious to others so that, you, that you're fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Be sneaky good. I have a friend who's a pastor, and last a year ago in January, we kind of set up some things of doing some spiritual practices, and one of them was he, he challenged, he said, why don't you every day do something good for someone and make sure that they don't really know. It's, your whole goal is to do good without them knowing. Wow. That's different. You ever get that where you do good and you do something for someone and, you're, and, and in your heart and your mind you're kind of going, well, will they, will they know that I, that I bought them groceries or I filled the gas tank or whatever it might be? You know what I mean? Be sneaky good. I, I honestly tell you, just practice that. Do that for three days. Say, so, you know, I'm going to do something good. Like, I'm going to pick up my clothes and not ask for my wife to go see what I did. I, you can do stupid little things, right? All the wives are going, I love you, you know. And here's the last. Because this is so, this is critical. This is the spiritual practices. Face God often. Face God often. What I mean by that is look him face to face, like Jesus did. Get away. You, you, you have to establish in your life. I, I, I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to say this to each and every one of you. And you think it might be hard. I don't care if it's a few minutes. You have to establish a practice where you get away and you're face to face with God. You read his word. You open your heart so he can kind of speak to your heart. 
Let them really look deeply into your character. Because there's a sense of face to face with God. God, what I'm doing today is for you. I'm going to learn to say no. I'm going to learn to maybe disappoint someone. I'm going to learn to be sneaky good. Because it all comes back to this. Someday, each and every one of us will face God. Each and every one of us will have our lives. And and when I say this about living this life, we will fail, we will sin. But when you fail, you have Jesus. He died. He took away your sin. If you trust that, you know, as you stand before him, you say, I've been trusting in you and your sacrifice, that alone. And now, saying that, you begin to learn to walk it out through the practices. I had a guy this last week I had breakfast with who's been in one of these. I've had a number of guys groups, and one of the guys group sitting with the guy, and I, I do, you know, sometimes the guys don't like for me to get together with him because I always ask him, how are you doing spiritually? Because he's been out of the group for a while. He goes, really well. So I've been reading God's Word 10 minutes. I give 10 minutes a day. I've been doing that consistently. And my heart went, yes. What's God calling you to? I'm going to ask the team to come, and we're going to kind of conclude this time with worship. But I'm going to ask you to kind of stay in your seat for a moment and and just reflect on what does this look like in your life to face God, to be sneaky good, or to disappoint that person that may need to be disappointed in order to prove yourself before God.